Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab them, turn them on if you use a digital one. Oh, yeah, kids, get out of here, go downstairs, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I like hearing the noise of the kids, so I'll give them a moment as you are flipping there to your scriptures. Uh, Romans 3, starting in 21. Okay, pardon? Yeah, Romans 3. We're jumping out of our first Corinthians series today because this is Reformation Sunday and Tuesday is Reformation Day, marking 506 years since the Protestant Reformation took place when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the church, castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. So I felt it was important that we look at that historical event, we look at what happened, and we looked at the, at, at the recovery of the gospel that took place because as you know as your pastor I hope you get this by now that those marks of the reformation the doctrines that they that they recovered they're not new they're of old they just got lost in a sense by the darkness of the medieval church and they were recovered and we too I too take a stand for those same marks and so does this church and we live those and protect those to the best of our ability so with that Let's begin reading in verse 21, uh, and I just want to say there won't be anything on the screen as we read through it, but as we do get to my PowerPoint, for whatever reason, our projector is shooting a weird yellow light behind my words, so I, pr I apologize that it might be a little difficult to read today. But anyways, let's go to the Word of God, starting in verse 21. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God, and are, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith, this is how to show God's right. This was sorry to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I know your bulletin says I'm going to 31, but I changed my mind and they were already printed. So, um, <laughs> but thanks be to God for the reading of his word. But if we were to take a verse or if we were to take a phrase or an idea and make it the foundation of today's sermon, it would be to ponder the righteousness of God. It would be to take verse 22 and to make that our main verse today, which says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. So we're going to zero in on the doctrine today of justification by faith alone. And at the root of justification is this idea of God's righteousness and our righteousness that is from God. And this doctrine is at the heart of the gospel, is at the heart of what brought you to Christ. In the Reformation, it was fitting that we sang that song about revival. The Reformation was a revival. 
It was a revival of true religion. The Reformation was essentially a theological revolution. And that revolution traveled across Europe and it spread out across all the way until today that it's reached the ends of the earth, essentially. And I want this morning to both look at this text from a perspective of history. So we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson today. And then from a perspective of theology but we're all going to base it mostly on verse 22 because verse 22 was instrumental in the movement of the Reformation. And my prayer is that this sermon would lay out for us why we should be immensely thankful to God for his providence by which he brought about this amazing recovery of biblical and religious orthodoxy. We tend to, it, it, every, you know, every uh, denomination has their kind of thing, but we tend to, as Baptists, forget that we have a long history of godly men and women who went before us. So looking back at church history is very important. So that's, I want to maybe whet your appetite a little bit for that. So there are many avenues that you can study the Reforma- Reformation from, but today, For the sake of time, unless you want to be here until five, we're just going to look at Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. He was in the order of Augustine, and at the heart of this small and somewhat diffident monk, God lit a spark. And just picture it. This spark was lit in an area that was saturated by gasoline, in a sense. It just exploded, this small, tiny spark. Martin Luther had no intentions to make it as big as it went. He nailed his 95 Thesis originally in a language that only scholars could read. But, you know, those Bible study students, those Bible college students, they do what they do best, and they interpreted and gave it out to everyone. And it just lit a reformation. It, it, it lit a spark of fire. And now in terms of beginning, and, and it's really hard, as much as a movement like this can have a beginning, scholars do, for the most part, point it right to the nailing of the 95 Thesis at Wittenberg, Germany. But you can go before then, and there were members who were speaking uh, Protestant thought long before Luther, but they were all being murdered, so they didn't get too far, okay? John Huss, for an example. John Huss, 101 years before Martin Luther was born, was burned at the stake for the same type of theology that Luther was holding. And he said, as the flames were rising up on him, he said, you may cook this goose today. But in a hundred years, a swan will arise that you will not be able to capture. And 101 years later, Martin Luther was born. Pretty interesting. So, but the, the, the real beginning for just a good solid date is 1517, October 31st, which is coming this Tuesday. And Luther... When he went to the, church, the castle church in Wittenberg to nail his 95 Thesis, he wanted to spark a conversation to reform the church to the word of God. And, 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 and one of the ways that the, the medieval church that he was wanting to reform because it went astray, one of the ways that it went astray was in this matter of justification, in this matter of salvation, in this matter of forgiveness. How can a person know that they are forgiven. How can you know that you are forgiven? And at this point in history, 
the Pope, who was Leo X at the time, he had dispatched a fellow, his name was John Tetzel, Joan Tetzel, and he went into Germany in order to raise money for the building of more churches and cathedrals and whatnot. And Tetzel was preceded by all, like all great sales campaigns by all these salesmen who went before him. And they were paving a way for these indulgences that Tetzel was coming to sell in Germany. And they were saying that in a few days, this guy named John Tetzel, he will be here and you'll be able to buy one of these indulgences that will get all of your sins forgiven. You can buy a piece of paper that will forgive all of your sins. Well, that went around quick. All right. And everyone started going, well, let's live a few weeks of like hell. Let's go out there and have a binger. Let's just go crazy. And that's what happened. The whole place went up in arms and people were sinning like crazy because why not? Because in a few weeks, John Tetzel's going to come. I just got to make sure I got $2 and I can buy my forgiveness. Yes. Yes, I'm going to get to that. Yes, I will get to indulgences. Indulgence right now were pieces of paper. There was different types of indulgences, but these ones were pieces of paper. They were stamped with a papal seal. And this papal seal is the highest order. You got to remember, they, they looked at the Pope as if he was right under Jesus Christ himself. Well, he can speak from his papal chair, and that is as good as the Bible. So he put out these pieces of paper that were called indulgences. I'll explain the theology of indulgences in a moment when we get there. And uh, these ones were declaring that the purchaser of these pieces of paper could be pardoned. And the marketing slogans behind these indulgences were pretty straightforward. They said things like, this pardon makes those who buy it cleaner than baptism, purer even than Adam in a state of, paradise, of innocence in paradise. How much are you willing to pay for that? <laughs> you know, you put that in your back pocket, go on your merry way. That's a, that's a great piece of paper to have. Another one was this. As soon as the money chinks in the bottom of the box, the buyer is pardoned and free from sin. There's another one I didn't put on here because it's disputed if he actually said it, but some, some can actually find a, a sermon that he said this in John Tetzel. He says it was kind of a rhyme in German, but it translates as, as soon as the coin rings in the coffer, a, a soul in purgatory springs. So it was all these play on words. So Tetzel, he comes into town with this big cage and all of these pieces of paper hanging from it, which are the indulgences that, uh, that the Pope has ordered out. And he says, hey, you who buy, come and buy. Put your money in this coffer and you will have your ticket to forgiveness. So people lined up. People paid. And they went on believing that they could buy their forgiveness, that they could buy their salvation. So Luther, he had reached a point where he just could not handle this any longer. And it was at that point that he went to the door and he nailed his 95 protests, his 95 theses to the castle church door. Now, and a lot led to Luther to get to this point. But, but I don't have time to go through all those details. But in short, Luther had a very 
um, uh, sensitive conscience. He was, he was afraid of sinning in a sense. He, there's stories about him being in the confessional with the priest. And the priest is like, that. we've been here for two hours and you're just confessing peccadillos of sin. Actually go do something that's worth confessing, Luther. He was, he was, he was horrified over the small mistakes he made in his life. And he said, well, the best way that I can live then is just to give myself to God. So he went, he became a monk. He Then he became a philosopher of ministry. And then the Roman Catholic Church sent him to Rome on a pilgrimage. And that's where he learned how corrupt the church was, how spiritually defiled it was. So he went back to Wittenberg. He finished his doctorate in theology. And then he started teaching through books like Psalms, Romans, instrumental in Colossians. And this was all brewing. It was like a pressure cooker. And then along comes John Tetzel. And it's like the feather that just kind of lands upon this pressure cooker and it explodes. He can't take it anymore. And one of the things that he was pondering, the main thing he was pondering, was verses like verse 22 and verses of Romans 1.17, which says, for in, the, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith or for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the righteousness of God mentioned there, and in verse, seven, in verse 17 and then in chapter 3, 22, drove Luther. It, it was the gas that he needed. And in fact, he, what he really discovered is what John Stott very helpfully summarizes in one of his books many years later when he talks about the righteousness of God. He summarizes the righteousness of God into four verbs. And it's very helpful for us to remember these verbs as we think of the righteousness of God. So John Stott says the righteousness of God is one, it is the status which God requires. That's the first thing God requires, which God requires is for us to ever stand before him. If you want to stand before God as a man or as a woman, you have to have righteousness. Secondly, it is what God achieves through the atoning sacrifice of his son. Thirdly, it is what he has revealed in the gospel. And fourthly, it is what God bestows freely on, on all who trust in Jesus. So those are the four verbs. And those are helpful for us to remember when we think about the righteousness of God, that it's something he requires, it's something he achieves, something he reveals, and bestows. I can go back for anyone who's still writing that down. And for Luther, he said, when I realized this about the righteousness of God, I was absolutely born again. The lights came on. He, said, he says, the gates of paradise were open before me. They flung open, and I had entered in. And then and there, he says, the whole Bible, the word of God, took on a whole new look for me. And that's very common, right? We, like, we have to confess that the Bible, on one degree, is understandable by everybody because we know we understand pronouns, verbs, adjectives, things like that. We can read it in English or the language we were born into, but for many of us, we must confess that for years and years and years, the Bible, even though it may have been taught to us, even though we may have read it or it was read to us, and even though we've memorized great portions of it, it never actually meant a thing to us. But suddenly, one day, the light turns on. And that evidence of the light 
starts to transform you in your life. As Romans will go on to say, you are transformed by the renewing of your what? Your what? Your mind. So for Luther, the question being answered that turned on the light for him was, how can man or woman know they are right with God? How? The Roman Catholic Church had an answer, and they still have that same answer. You can know by knowing that a religious professional did something for you. Whether it was in your baptism, whether it was in you receiving mass, whether it was in you saying enough Hail Marys, or whether it's in you giving evidence of the fact of your contrition, and so on and so forth. And they're saying, we'll tell you what to do. We'll tell you how it works. We'll tell you how you can know. And Luther's saying, no, I didn't know. But now I know. And that was the great and amazing turn in Luther's life. And so what Luther and the other reformers were seeking to do was to reform the church by, I know this is a shocker, the word of God that he gave to us to remind the church that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, not the pope, not the pastor, not the government, because they were really twisted back then and, and intertwined, but God. And what God says about the church is what, how it goes. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so they were pointing everyone back to the word of God. And they're saying, essentially, I'm putting it in our terms, the Bible's up here, and the church is down here. And the Bible dictates how we, as Christians, live. The Bible says that it is theonoustos. It's the word of God. It's theonoustos. It's breathed out of God, and it's profitable for correction, training, and teaching. But the Roman Catholic Church had a grip on it. And rather than having their teaching conform to the word of God, they were imposing their teaching on the word of God. And there was so much biblical literacy that nobody could question it. So they're saying the Bible's up here and the church is down here, but the Catholic Church had it this way. The Bible, really the Pope and the church and then the Bible. And, and, and so... This is where it was coming to a point of tension. Who is the authority? The Pope, the councils, or God? But we have to leave history and we have to get to theology because I could just talk and talk and talk and talk on history and you guys will go to sleep. But the, histor the historical aspects are there for your own pursuit. I'm dealing with them very selectively and purposely so and not going into much detail, but they're important elements in seeking to understand the theology that underpins all that's here. Because as I said to you, at the heart of the Reformation, at the heart of Romans is this question. How are sinful men and women made right with God? How? Particularly in Luther's case, he was asking the question, how can I know, how can I have a sense of pardon and know that God has forgiven my sins? Now, there were advantages in Luther's day because Luther and the reformers lived in an era where there was no doubt about the reality of sin. People knew about sin, and they acknowledged their sin and their need for salvation. It's vastly different from where we are today. If people think they need salvation today, they chalk it up to the fact that they just need to go out and find themselves. I just need to go find myself. I need to go on another retreat. Or they replace the moral. This is what you hear commonly when you speak to non-believers on the street. They replace the moral with the psychological. Oh, I'm not a bad person. No, no, no. I'm a good person. I do good things. The problem is that psychologically, I'm just not able to live up with the expectations you're putting on me. 
And the problem with that is it's not my expectations. It's God's expectations. So they replace the moral with the psychological. And the ideologies and the frameworks of these self-organized religions of man are replete. They're full to provide answers to these questions. And they just distract you. They take you to different wells that won't satisfy you. And we as Christians, as people of the book, we have answers to the questions of what awaits me after death. If there is a God, how will I fare if I stand before him? How do you answer that question? How do you know that when you die and you stand before a thrice holy God, church, how do you know that you will make it into the gates of heaven and not through the gates of hell? How do you know? How do you know if you leave here today and get hit by a bus that you are on heaven bound? There's not many buses in Drumheller, so it would be unique. (laughs) I'm just kidding. How we know, how we know is the doctrine of justification. It's what gives us Christians certainty, and it's the heart of the gospel. It's the good news to the dying world around us. So what is then the doctrine of justification by faith alone that drove Martin Luther to try to reform the church? How can an unjust person ever hope to stand before a just judgment of God? In other words, how are we saved This is a matter, church, of eternal consideration. The Reformation was not a tempest in the teapot. It was not a a question of theological shadow boxing. At stake in the controversy in which many paid with their lives was this doctrine that is so central to the New Testament gospel. However, in this day and age, there are few professing Christians who can even define the term justification. We are in a very biblically illiterate age. We are so distracted. We are not much different now from the age that Martin Luther is talking into. And that's my prayer, this is my little soapbox moment, that God would ignite a passion in our hearts again as believers to uphold his word. What we have today is people running around to so-called people who can give them prophetic words all the time when God has given us the word and we're ignoring that. But no, I'm going to go see prophet so-and-so because they're going to tell me how I can live however I want. No, God has given us a word and we must consume that. If he speaks to us other ways, that's great. But God has given us his final unchanging authoritative word. And if we're neglecting that, why would he give us anything else? If the church denies or obscures this doctrine of justification, it's an issue. Luther insisted that justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And if the church does not get this right, that church ceases to be an authentic church. If that church denies or even obscures the doctrine of justification alone, it is no longer a Christian body. To Luther's sentiment, John Calvin added that the doctrine of justification is the hinge at which the whole church turns. J.I. Packer, a little bit more modern, and he served here in Canada, uh, another metaphor, he said, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the atlas which carries the whole of the Christian faith on his shoulders. If justification by faith alone stumbles, the whole Christian faith comes tumbling after it. 
We need to be clear on where, what the word justification means and the implications of this doctrine. Let me explain what justification first does not mean, because that's very helpful. When we're talking about being justified in the sight of God, we are not talking about a divine pardon. I know that's how it's normally taught, but we're not talking about a divine pardon. In justification, God is not just pardoning the sinner. Think of it, when a governor or the president exercises executive clemency and he pardons a convicted criminal, he more or less is just forgiving the criminal of past crimes and just setting him free, hoping he doesn't do it again. Certainly justification does involve forgiveness, we'll get to that, but let us not confuse the act of justification with just an act of pardon. In justification, God is making a legal declaration, what's called a forensic declaration, right? We've all kind of, I know maybe nobody wants to confess it here, we've all watched a crime show every once in a while in our life, and we see these little people running around collecting forensic evidence. They're looking for forensic evidence, which is used at trials in criminal cases, and forensics has to do with judicial judgment or declaration. And the New Testament shows us that in the act of justification, God makes a judicial declaration about a person's status before he makes his judgment. It's pretty impressive. He makes a declaration about a person's status before he judges them. Are you feeling the weight of that? That's powerful. Again, what happens in justification is not a pardon. It's an act in where God declares a person to be just. Justification is that act by which God judicially declares a person to be righteous in his sight. And in the 16th century, the Roman Catholics and Protestants, they agreed on that in the final analysis that the act of justification is something that God does, that it is a judicial declaration. Both sides, Catholic and Protestant, agreed on this. This is why it could get a little confusing when you start looking into their theology, that it does not happen until God declares that person righteous. The issue then is this. On what grounds does God make that declaration? What grounds does God declare someone just? See, you've got to remember the good news of the gospel is that God pronounces people just, astonishingly enough, while they are still sinners. That was the debate with Rome. Rome doesn't believe that. Rome set forth her doctrines and still does that God will never declare a person just until that person, under divine scrutiny, is found to be just. If you read, maybe you guys don't read this at night, but I do, in the sixth session of the Council of Trent, in the middle of the 16th century, at the heart of the Counter-Reformation, so this is Rome's response to the Reformation, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church defined her doctrine on justification. And it continues to echo this way throughout centuries, declaring that without equivocation, that before God will ever declare a person just, righteousness must be in that person. Righteousness must adhere that person. Meaning when God looks at us, he will not say that we are just until he sees that we are really just. Now here's a question for you. Does that sound like the gospel to you? I hope it doesn't. Rome teaches that we cannot be just without grace. That we will never become just without faith. That we will never become just without the assistance of Christ. We need faith. We need grace. We need Jesus. We need the righteousness of Christ infused into us and poured into our soul to which we will all hopefully will say amen. But here's where the issue lies. 
Rome teaches that you must cooperate with that grace to such a degree that we will, in fact, become righteous. If you're taking notes, you want to catch the difference between become righteous and declared righteous. If we die with any impurity in our soul, in the Roman view, lacking complete righteousness, we will not go to heaven. But say there is no mortal sin in your life. Say you're a good Catholic. You've said enough Hail Marys. You've done everything that you're supposed to do. You're still not going to heaven right away. You're going to a place called purgatory. And purgatory is a place of purging. And the point of the purging is to get rid of all that dirtiness that clings to you still. And that could take three years or that could take three million years. For me, it would probably be four. But the object of purgatory is to make us righteous before we enter into God's heaven. This is putting a lot of onus on us. Part of the reason for this belief that justification is rooted in a righteousness that is of ourself comes from a very unfortunate translation error in church history. In the early centuries, when the Greek language was passing away and the central language of the church was becoming Latin because Rome fell and became Christianized and whatnot, the Latin Bible took precedent, and the Greek Bible didn't. But God inspired the Greek Bible, not the Latin Bible. So this is, it becomes an issue. And they borrowed the Roman word for justification. And the Latin word that is used for justification means to make righteous which we believe as protestants happens in sanctification right you're justified you're saved and then now you are living out your sanctification which will eventually lead to your glorification in heaven so the, in, in, in the roman view god will never pronounce a person just or righteous until by the help of god's grace in christ that person actually becomes righteous not declared righteous, but becomes righteous. And here's the issue with that. If God were to judge you tonight, what would he find? Would he find sin in your life? Would he find sin, hidden sin? Could he possibly declare you righteous based on all your good works that you've done? We don't need to ask, we don't have to ask myself that question. We don't have to ask the uh, Roman Catholic Church, that question. Let's just ask Paul that question. What does he say? In verse 20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You can't save yourself. Doesn't matter how much you try. Your good works are just going to burn up on his altar. They're filthy rags. This is precisely why, church, we have to fight to protect that the ground of your and my salvation, the reason for our justification, cannot be found in any righteousness in ourselves as, soul, as Rome teaches. This is why we need so desperately what Luther calls an alien righteousness. He says this righteousness is extra nos. It means that it comes from outside of ourselves. It's not our righteousness, it's somebody else's. And in simple terms, this means that the only righteousness sufficient for us to stand before the judgment of a thrice holy God is the righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is only theological shorthand for the affirmation that justification is by Christ alone, by his righteousness, which is received through faith. 
And when Paul speaks here about justification, he is not talking about pardon. He is not talking about what God's declaration of what he finds in us or in our behaviors. He is talking about something else altogether. One of the slogans of of Luther and the other reformers that was widely repeated throughout the centuries is this Latin phrase that means, at the same time, righteous and sinner. At the same time, righteous and sinner. And the point of this phrase, I think, is pretty straightforward. It means us Christians, we are someone who at the very same time exist as righteous and as sinners in this day until we are glorified with Christ. While we are sinners, we are also righteous in God's sight by virtue of this legal transfer that God made by assigning to us the righteousness of Jesus. And if we put our trust in Christ, we will receive that righteousness. By virtue of this transfer, or you might hear the word imputation of the righteousness of Christ, we are declared righteous while we are still sinners. Read Romans 7. The Apostle Paul even wrestles with this. Hey, I don't want to do this, but I keep doing it. And I want to do that, but I'm just not doing it. Because who's going to save me, this wretched man that I am? In that picture of that, when he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death, this wretched man? There was an, there was an old way that they would um, torture people by chaining a dead corpse to their back until that dead corpse would infect them and kill them. And that's the picture that Paul is using. Who's going to deliver me from this wretched, dead body of death that's attached to me? He's talking about himself. Only Christ. Only his righteousness. Jesus only takes the dirty church. He doesn't take the clean. Because there's not any. None of you are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the point that the apostle is laboring to make in this section of this epistle. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Oh, I didn't change it, sorry. And if if you were to read Romans 4, which we're not going today, you'll see that Paul is going to show that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a novelty. It's not something new that Jesus made up. It's not something new that the apostle dreamed up. The doctrine of justification is rooted in the testimony of the Old Testament. The whole point of the law is to drive us to the one who is perfect, the one who has a righteousness that we don't possess, but that we need. We find it in the teaching of the prophets. Go read Romans 4 for yourself. He'll point you there. But when we claim justification is by faith alone or through faith, we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand what we're saying. To be justified by faith, to be, uh, because we have faith in the sense that our faith is now, we don't want to look at it now that our, our, our faith is now the supreme work. Right? So many Christians talk about faith as it's a work. Oh, sorry, sister so-and-so, you just got to have more faith. Oh, just have a little bit more. How? I can't muster up faith. Faith is a gift that is given to me. He said he gave me a measure of faith. I can't just go deep down inside myself and find more faith. Faith is not a work. But we so often talk about it as it is. Oh, just have more faith. I have all the faith I can have. Thankfully, all I need is about the size of a mustard seed. And God will move. That's the point of faith. The language here of being justified by faith uh, uh, or through faith simply means that faith is the means by which we lay hold of Christ, the vehicle by which we uh, lay hold of Christ. And it's the means by which the righteousness of Christ is bestowed upon us. 
The Roman Catholic Church defines faith as important and indeed essential to justification as well. Faith is the foundation for justification, but the instrumental cause of justification, according to Rome, is the sacrament of baptism, which is where one of the issues lie with their theology. To understand the idea of the instrumental cause, you kind of have to look at uh, uh, the uh, philosopher Aristotle, who examined different ways that change is brought about. He said that the word cause, the cause of something, is too simple of a word. We have to be more specific if we're going to be scientific in our causes. So Aristotle uses a sculpture as an illustration. He uh, uh, He says a piece of a sculpture starts out as a block of stone. Nothing beautiful about it. So, uh, uh, so what has to take place for that stone to be changed into a beautiful statue, something done by like Michelangelo or something? Aristotle appeals to five different causes, which leads to a sculpture being made from stone into this beautiful statue, but I'm not going to go through all five. I'm just interested in the fifth. Aristotle spoke of instrumental cause, which is the means by which a sculptor shapes this beautiful stone uh, into a uh, statue. And the sculptor uses a chisel and a hammer. And he says those are the instrumental causes, right? The instrumental causes of Rembrandt's painting are his brushes. The instruments are, 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 the, instruments are the means by which the change is taking place. So Rome says the instrumental cause of justification is baptism in the first instant. And if you screw that up, well, guess what? You can go through the sacrament of penance in the second instance. So if someone loses his justification through mortal sin, he can have it restored through the sacrament of penance, which includes doing works of satisfaction. You've probably seen it in movies. Oh, go say a few Hail Marys and go on your merry way. That's, the, that's, the, that's penance. Faith is the only instrument, church, by which one is linked to Christ and receives his righteousness. It is vitally important that we stand and understand what faith is and why we call people to faith, why the New Testament calls us to faith. Faith means that we place our trust in Christ and his righteousness. We don't trust our own righteousness because we don't have any. We don't have any righteousness. When we trust Christ's righteousness on our behalf and we embrace him, then God transfers legally the righteousness of Christ to us. There's a double transfer that is taking place. Christ dies for our salvation, but he also lives for our salvation. Our sins are transferred to Jesus, and he died on the cross to bear all our sins. God assigned all of our guilt to his son. He transferred it from us to Christ, but that is only half the transaction. If he stopped there, it would just be a pardon. The other half of the transaction took place, though. And God took Christ's righteousness, and he assigned it to us when we believe in Christ. So knowing that although we will stand before God with whatever we can call righteousness of our own, that is filthy rags, we will not perish because we're actually cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. And that is the righteousness of God that Paul introduces to us in Romans 1. The righteousness not by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that makes available to all of us who put our trust in Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. 
though, sorry, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking about the grace by which God freely gives the righteousness of Christ to a sinner. One who is at the same time just and still sinner through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 25 to 26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Big word there, propitiation. It means to satisfy or to demand uh, the demands of justice. In biblical terms, it means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. God placed sin under and evil under his judgment, and he decreed that he was going to pour his wrath upon it. And in New Testament terms, that means that we, when we are saved by God, we're actually saved by God from God. We're saved by God from God's wrath that he is going to pour out on sin. Propitiation satisfies completely the demands of God's wrath and justice, which is what the cross is all about. Christ, as our substitute, took upon himself the wrath that we deserve to pay the penalty that was due for our guilty sins to satisfy the demands of God's justice. In his work of propitiation, Jesus does something that's on a vertical level in respect to God, satisfying the justice for God. And then there's another word, uh, uh, expiation, that has directly to do with us. The prefix ex means away from or out of. One of the benefits of justification is the remission of sin. Our sin being removed from us, our sin goes away, right? If you buy something with your credit card, you're going to get something in the mail saying, you better pay this. You better remit payment. And when we send in the payment, the money's transferred from our account to the credit card's account, and everything's appeased. And when the New Testament speaks about expiation, it is referring to the sense in which Christ removes our sins from us and takes them away. Our sins are transferred to, from our account to the account of Christ, and his righteousness is transferred from his account to our account. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In the work of Christ, there is propitiation and expiation. God set forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood through faith that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Church, there is no such thing as cheap grace. No such thing as cheap grace. The gospel is not simply an announcement of pardon, that God's not concerned about what you've done, so he just overlooks it. In justification, God doesn't merely decide unilaterally to just forgive us of our sins. I know that's the prevailing idea. I know that's how people preach the gospel, but it's wrong. That's not the gospel. They spin a cheap gospel that says God freely forgives us of sin because he's just such a loving, graceful, dear, wonderful God. And it doesn't disturb him one bit that you have sinned uh, cosmically against him on every level. Oh, he doesn't care about that. No, church. God never violates his holiness. God never negotiates his righteousness. God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. He won't. God demands and requires sin to 
be punished. Every sin. That is why the cross is the universal symbol of Christianity. That is the sign that God and man meet and collide through the crushing of Jesus in his blood so that you and I no longer are judged on our merit, but on the merits of Christ. He didn't lay aside his holiness. He crushed his son because of his holiness. He crushed his son because he is a God of justice. And in the drama of justification, God remains just because Christ sacrificed his life. He does not set it aside. We cannot be justified without righteousness. But that is the glory of his grace. That in his justice, his justice is served vicariously by a substitute that he appointed who willingly died for you and me. God's mercy is shown that he saves us not because of our righteousness, but because of someone else's. We get into heaven on somebody else's coattails. That's grace. That somebody else, that redeemer, that Jesus, our savior is perfectly righteous and has fulfilled the justice of God perfectly. That is the glory of justification. God demonstrates that he is both the just by crushing his son and the justifier by forgiving us of our sins and clothing us in the righteousness of Christ. If all he did was maintain his righteousness without extending the transfer of the righteousness to us, he wouldn't be the justifier. But he is. He is both the just, holy God and the justifier of sinners. Which church? That's the marvel of the gospel. We must drill this into our minds. We must preach the doctrine of justification to ourselves daily. And we must share this good news with the world around us. That there is only one way to heaven. There is only one way for you to stand before a holy, righteous God who burns with indignation towards sin. And that is not to stand before God on your own merit. That is not to stand before God on your own good works, but that is to stand before God in the grace of somebody else, in the righteousness of somebody else. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, O Lord. We thank you for a little bit more of a theological sermon than a a preach, O God. We thank you, Lord, for this reformation that you used Martin Luther and others to spark and move forward, O God. And Lord, we thank you that because of that, we have the privilege, O Lord, to read the Bible in our own languages and to know that confidently we can go before God. But through it all, Lord, we know without a shadow of a doubt that because of your your son's life and his works that he did and his death and his resurrection, that we know without a shadow of a doubt that we are saved that we are not saved because how tightly we hold to you, O God, because you know, as the old hymn says, we're prone to wander. But Lord, we are held tightly by you, and that's why we are saved. We thank you, O Father, that although we are called to good works, we are not called, we are not called to, work out our salva- uh, to, to work for our salvation. Sorry. But Father, we are saved by the works of Christ and not our own. We praise you, O Lord, for what Luther called an alien righteousness that you have clothed us in. 
Father, help us to remember this when we are feeling that we have uh, abandoned you because we forgot to read our Bible one day or, or other things like this that the legalistic mind will throw at us. But God, that we will joyfully go to our word. We will joyfully go to prayer, joyfully gather with the saints Sunday after Sunday, not to be more accepted, but because we are wholly accepted by you. Praise you, O Lord. May we lift our voices to you and may you take pleasure in our worship. In Jesus' name. Amen.